Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. One day, a man in a major city who had lost his way, he came across a, a dumb man, a man who, who couldn't speak. And as he tried to engage him, he figured that out. But he asked this guy for guidance anyway. And, and the dumb man made it clear through his hand motions that he wasn't going to help unless this man gave him some money. And so the stranger, he understood, and he took out some money, and he hands it to the guy. Whereupon the dumb man, he starts to speak to him and explains to him where he needs to go. Well, now the, the stranger, he, he's distracted about where he's going, and he's thinking, how's a guy that was dumb two minutes ago, how's he tell me where I'm supposed to go, right? How, how does he explain this? And so he says to the stranger, so basically, you walk around the street pretending to be dumb, pretending not to be able to speak, unless someone gives you money? To which the man who had been faking, he says, well, because at the present day, it is only money that talks. Now, unfortunately, this is all too true all the time. And uh, if you have children and they do any work periodically, they say to you when you ask them to do work at the house, are you going to pay me for this, Dad? <laughs> no, I'm not. But I do love you and you'll eat tonight, right? <laughs> However, this is often true in the church. This is often true in the context of the church. And this account is fascinating to me, again, on two levels. It's fascinating related to Simon. It's also fascinating with the giving of the Spirit. And they're really, you know, if, if, if we wanted to, we could preach two totally different messages, right? Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he put them together and he did so intentionally. And I think he did that so that we understand the inworkings of the church, Somebody who's truly controlled by the Spirit of God like Stephen, it's not about the money. That, that's not why we do what we do. It's not why we engage one another. It's not why we love one another. It's not about what I can get. It's not about how people perceive me. And folks, whether we like it or not, that is really big for a lot of us. How do people look at me? That's a real hurdle, if we're honest enough to admit it, right? So in part, this is what the struggle for Simon is, but it connects to the Spirit. And we'll see all that in a moment. So as we walk through this, here's what I want you to note with me today. That all of us, we all must be aware of self-seeking and bitter envy, and instead be controlled by the Spirit. The truth is that self-seeking and potential for bitter envy, that exists in every single one of us. And some of us, depending on our makeup and background and everything else, sometimes what's going on in life, that has a tendency to creep up a little quicker. 
in us, right? So this text is significant in that regard. Now remember the framework of Acts related to Luke. Luke is writing his second, the continuing story of Jesus, if you remember, the second edition from his gospel. It's the second longest book in our New Testament. The first longest is his first edition, right? Luke is a man after my own heart. But as he writes, remember he frames in verse 1 of Acts 1, He's saying this is the continuing story of all that Jesus began to do and began to teach. And now we're going to see that lived out in the lives of the apostles. And we see that framework. The theme of the book is in verse 8. Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses to me beginning in Jerusalem. Well, guess what the beginning in Jerusalem section is of Acts? Chapters 1 to 7. We're moving into section 2 today. The gospel is moving out from Jerusalem now to Judea and Samaria. And I want you to notice Luke kind of expresses that spread outside of these accounts. He expresses that with just this half a sentence in verse 25. And they preached the gospel to all of these villages of Samaria on their way back home. So Luke doesn't make a big deal of it, but he could have told us 57 more stories of the spread of the gospel. But he sums it up in that sentence. This is what happened, right? I mean, it's incredible. But this story is significant because of its place, because of its setting, establishing the church. And listen carefully to me. This is significant to us because it connects largely with us. To my knowledge, there are not a lot of Jewish believers sitting in this room today. Most of you are Gentiles. This story begins to connect with us, right? So this, uh, again, this account is significant. Now, as we walk through, the thing I want you to observe, again, beware. Beware of self-seeking and bitter envy and instead be controlled by the Spirit. Not just on Sunday, but every day. What comes out of us every day is evidence. Are you truly controlled by the Spirit of God? Now, at the beginning of this section, the first thing we see is kind of the spread of persecution Uh, Luke is kind of putting a bow on the story of Stephen, though in some respects, he is not rehearsing that. It doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily part of that story, though it is leading us to the, the framework of what causes the spread, okay? So the spreading in part is happening because this great persecution explodes in Jerusalem. We see that in verses 1 to 4. The persecution in Jerusalem, but as a result, the spread of the word. Persecution and the spread of the word, that's significant. So we're immediately, verse 1, we're introduced to this character, Saul, which I find absolutely fascinating on several levels. Number one, think through in your mind who the main character at the end of Acts is. A guy named Paul. Think of where we are in chapter 8. We're already a quarter of the way through this book. And we now get introduced to Saul. 
Saul is going to take up more than half of the book in just a few chapters. And what that demonstrates is a couple of things. It demonstrates that you and I never know what an individual can or might become. Oftentimes, as human beings, we look at somebody and we say, ah, that's a, that's a real project, right? I just, I don't have time for that, right? Or, or that person's a menace. That, this is Paul. Paul's a menace. He's a danger. And this is exactly the way he's described here in these initial verses in chapter 8. Paul goes in and he starts ripping, literally, to the best of his ability, he starts ripping the church to shreds. He is destroying it as best he can. This is his motive. This is his longing. This is his desire. This is what's going on in his mind. I am going to end this cult because that's what it was to Paul. That's significant. All right. And the introduction of Paul is fascinating. The way that he's initially presented. Think of this presentation as Luke writes. Luke may have been writing with Paul in the other room. <laughs> Paul's waiting to die. Paul probably dies in 67 AD. Luke's writing this around 64. Luke famously was with Paul through, through all of this, maybe in Rome at the moment he's writing this. So remember the context of this conversation. I wonder how that struck Luke as he wrote that down. At this point, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 28 years ago, Paul was trying to kill us, destroy us. And now God's using him to build the church. Great persecution arose. We see that from the initial verse. And what that does is it scatters the people. It scatters believers. They have to move for their own livelihood's sake. Remember the makeup, the fiber of the um, cultural context for the Jews, it was centered on the synagogue. You get in trouble with the synagogue, kicked out of the synagogue, then people don't use you to fix their roof. Well, if you're a roofer, that's a bad problem, right? They don't use you to fix their pipes. If you're a plumber, that's a bad problem. So that persecution causes these believers, they have to leave. They have to go other places where they'll be accepted, not because they're part of the synagogue, but because they actually can do whatever it was that they we're doing. Well, God used that. God used that to spread the word. And that's exactly what's going on. Now, verse two is interesting. We have the lament of Stephen. Now, I think sometimes I've looked at this text and thought, you know, they're just mourning over Stephen. But here's the truth. Within the culture of the day, within the Jewish fiber, there was an oral law that if you were stoned, you could be buried, but you could not be mourned. You were a sinner. You were guilty. God had condemned you and the, the culture had condemned you by stoning. No right to be mourned. Luke says, we mourned Stephen. Even though the Jewish authorities didn't like it, we mourned Stephen because he wasn't wrong and he was righteous. So we mourned him. So in a sense... That's an affront to the religious leaders, again, because you're not allowed to do that. There literally was a part of the Mishnah, the law, that said you can't mourn somebody that's stoned. They did anyway. Three, Saul's violating the church premises, the, the sectors that have been built up in Jerusalem. He's going into them one by one, and he is trying to tear them 
literally to bits. Now, Luke, in a sense, the way he frames this, he's reminding us, Jesus told you that in Luke 21. He told you this was going to happen. He told you people were going to persecute you. So in a sense, Luke is reminding us as if the church is saying in the moment, hey, Jesus said this was coming. This is okay. This is okay. We might have to move. That's okay. Jesus said it was coming. We'll still follow Jesus. Is that your response? When it gets hard, is that is that your response? I'll still follow. I don't always understand. It doesn't always make, but I'll follow. I'll follow. Verse 4 Again, he reiterates the scattering. They are being spread. And as they are spread, the word is spread. So now Philip in particular, verses 5 to 13, we see the gospel going to Samaria. And remember, as I've, said, as I've told us from the beginning, this is the framework of the book. 1 to 7, Jerusalem. 8 to 12, Judea, Samaria. 13 to 28, to the ends of the earth. This is the framework of the book. Uh, witnesses... To the world, right? Beginning in Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. So this is the beginning of that cycle to Judea and Samaria. And the first individual we have going is Philip. Now, I don't know about you, but immediately when I read that, everybody says, this is Philip the deacon. And I say, wait, how do we know that? I mean, do you remember there's a Philip the apostle? Why is it Philip the deacon? I don't know, but I'm not saying it's Philip the deacon unless I can figure out why it's Philip the deacon, right? Well, the reason is, is if you look down at verse 5, and this appears to make sense, uh, or excuse me, look back at verse 2. No, that's not true. Verse 1, just before verse 2. The the people are scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles. So Luke has already told us, likely, this isn't Philip. And the reason is this, they for now are kind of staying in Jerusalem. It kind of functions as a hub for believers, for Christianity as it begins to grow. So really the spreading of the church early on, it's not through the apostles. Yes, there's training, uh, there's work on their part. They're, They're doing things with the church, but where are they doing it? In Jerusalem. Believers just go out. Believers just like us. They go out and they do the work. And it wasn't complicated and it wasn't overdone. And I doubt they were building cathedrals and and everything that goes with that. And campuses and uh, all of the things that go along with church so many times in our minds, in our world, that's not happening here. They're going into towns and they start talking to people and suddenly they got a group meeting at the house. And in a month, it's 25 people at the house. And they say, you know, um, Frank says to his wife, Marge, we got to do something. We can't fit 26. You know what I mean? We got to split this group, right? And all of a sudden, well, now we got two. And then in a couple more months, now we got four. And then a few more months, we got eight. All of a sudden, this town is kind of overwhelmed. Right? This is how the gospel went. Listen to me. That's how it's supposed to work today. We're supposed to win the ones that we engage with on a regular basis. This isn't go across the street and beat on a perfect stranger's door. And, you know, if you can haul them out of that door, that is not the mindset. The mindset is win the folks God puts in your life, family, extended family, neighbors that you've known for 15 years. 
Do they know Jesus? Do you know? This is the call. This is what we're called to do. This is how the gospel spread. So Philip goes to Samaria. As he goes, he goes, verses 6 and following, he goes and he preaches. He's preaching the word. He's explaining the word uh, in Samaria. And uh, he is proclaiming, if you notice in verse 5, Philip went down. You say in your mind, in a minute, you're going to explain Samaria and tell us it's north. Well, how did Philip go down? It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's like being in Denver. If you, if you go somewhere from Denver, you're probably going down, even if you go north, right? Because of the mountains. So Jerusalem's higher, and so when they're going to Samaria, it is true. He's going down, but he's going north, right? So in our minds, that'd be up, not down, okay? But that's the idea of that phrasing. He goes to a city in Samaria. Now, this is significant. The relationship with Samaria and Jews in Jerusalem is very very important. Philip goes, he is proclaiming to them, and I think the message that he gives them is that Jesus is the promised Messiah from God. They would have been thoughtful, thinking of, anticipating the promised one, the Messiah. So Philip says, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He's come. Do you believe? So this is what he goes and preaches. He does things. He does these signs. People see that. Now, in connection with the signs and wonders... Luke transitions us to Simon. And we'll talk about Simon in a moment. But the relationship between Samaria and Jerusalem, the Jews, is really important. Samaria is a region. Originally, it's a city. Over time, it became identified as a region. So there's a lot of people that live there. It's not just the city of Samaria. Uh, When the Assyrians took over, they took all of the people that lived there, they carried them off. Over time, they sent colonists back. And this is what happened during the empires of Assyria and Babylon and Persia, especially, and Greece, or the Hellenistic, the Hellenist uh, Empire. That's the Greek Empire. What happened is, in order to make these regions more peaceful, they'd send in colonists, right? And then they'd kind of let them function. They just let them live their lives. And they got to live and do what they did and practice what they practiced and worship the way they worship. So over time, these colonists, and First Kings gives us this account. It's actually a fascinating story. First Kings 17, uh, there are uh, are some consequences for these colonists not knowing the Lord. And so uh, this comes before the king, and the king says, okay, fine. Let's take one of these Jewish priests and we'll send them back. So Jewish priest goes back to Samaria, and he begins to train the people. He trains them uh, about the Old Testament law. He trains them about Messiah. And so the Samarians, to a great extent, They live almost the same way as the Jews. They practice the religious system very, very similarly to the Jews. They have their own Levitical family line, a line of priests, Levitical priests. They led the worship of the people. So Sumerians are very closely aligned with the Jews. Over time, the Sumerians claimed that they were from the line of Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the tribes of Israel. Well, full-blooded Jews, they said, no, you're not. You're half-breeds. 
You're frauds. And so they hated, they hated the Samaritans. This is the relationship. They did not like them. Now you say, why in the world would you tell us all this? Well, it's very, very important in a moment. You'll see why in a second, right? But the Samaritans then are geographically, they're just north, they're not very far away. Secondly, ethnically, the ethnic makeup is not, does not align with the Jewish mindset of what your ethnicity should be. So listen carefully to me. I'm not making this up. This is there. There is a hard racial tension between these two. They do not like each other. The Jews hated them. And if we're honest, the Samaritans hated them back. Okay? So that tension exists. Third is that religious tension. Again, you're frauds. This is the mindset. Okay, this is the mindset. Now, let's move uh, to Simon here. Remember, as Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, where she, what is she? She's a Samaritan woman. And what does she say to Jesus? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. We worship at Mount Gerizim, and you worship at the temple in Jerusalem, right? This is what makes us different. She's talking about practice religiously. Jesus is talking about Do you know God? That's the issue. Do you truly know God? Listen to me. Religion doesn't save anyone. You can be deeply religious. You can be any number of different religions. Listen to me. Religion will never save you. Jesus alone saves. You need Jesus. We'll see that in a minute. But that is in part the focus, all right? So the crowds, they're drawn to Philip. They're drawn to the word, and they're going to respond in a minute. But before that, Luke introduces us to somebody. So the third thing that we'll see is Simon the magician and even his acceptance of the gospel. So the Samaritans are going to respond to the gospel, and even Simon's going to respond. Now, he's significant. Uh, and a significant character, and he, he kind of fills this critical role through the story. And it's important, you'll see more why in a second. But he's a magician. Simon has kind of identified himself as the great one, right? He is this great one. That term kind of connects him in some way to a deity. We see that in verses 10 and 11. The entire population, the entire population is enthralled with him. Throughout the Bible, you'll see this description. Small and great, the smallest, the greatest. What that is, is an original language, a Greek euphemism for everybody in the culture. From the smallest, the least significant member of the culture, the person no one knows, maybe the person no one wants to know the least, to the greatest, the most important person in the culture. The Bible often uses that phrase to give us this perspective of everybody, right? That's the point Luke is making here. Everybody followed, loved, lauded, honored Simon, all right? And they called him, literally, verses uh, 10 tells us, they described him, this man is the power of God. That is called great. So in the minds of the people, He has like some supernatural powers, potentially even Simon has made a claim 
I'm divine or from the gods. And because I'm from the gods, you really do need to listen to me. And when he would do his magic and they would see that, they would say, yeah, maybe he is from the gods. Right? So everybody's enthralled with old Simon, right? But if you look at verse 12, but, but, he turns back, Luke, the conversation, he says, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So what happened is Peter comes into town, he's preaching, we get introduced to Simon, but despite that, Despite their loyalty to Simon, despite their desire to follow him, despite what they believed about him, they believed in Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Now, one of the things that's critical for us to understand is this. They heard the truth about Jesus and they responded. Listen very, very carefully to me. There is a point that every person must come to where they hear the truth They understand that truth and they respond. They hear, they understand, they respond. Listen to me. You can't just make this kind of mental affirmation. Yeah, I I think what the Bible says about Jesus is true. Listen to me. That's not, that is not genuine salvation. Genuine salvation is this. I hear what the Bible says about Jesus and I actually, I believe it with every fiber of my being. I believe it so much that I'm going to call out to him and ask him to be my savior. And then I'm going to tell everybody I know Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is in charge. And the truth is this, for many, many, many people, their faith is like a person that doesn't believe that a chair can hold you up. Have you ever watched somebody sit down in a chair and they don't believe it'll hold them up? Right? You ever watch that? If you come to my house and sit on my swing, it makes so much noise that you might think that, right? You'll, you'll do it cautiously. But if you don't believe this chair's going to hold you up, well, you, you kind of hang on and, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm there, but I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not putting my weight on that chair. Because you know what? I don't know that I really believe. Listen to me. There are countless hundreds, I would say maybe dare, thousands, millions in America That's their relationship with God. Yeah, I've heard it. I think it's true. They don't believe because they're not willing to sit down in the chair. Their faith is not real. They hear it. There's an assent. Yeah, I I think that could be true. Listen to me. When you believe, it changes the way you act. And most of you, when you got here today, you sat down in your chair, right? And none of you that I've observed, did your chair fall apart? Folks, that's how we accept Jesus. It's genuine belief. All in, I sit down, I'm trusting him completely, alone. There isn't anything else. There's no other religious ceremony. There's nothing else that goes with this. Remember, and even as he says it in verse 12, they were baptized. Why were they baptized? To identify themselves with Jesus. That's it. This is a symbolic, in a sense, it's a visible picture, in a sense, that I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's why baptism pictures buried with him, right? That's why we dunk people. You can't give a picture if you 
sprinkle water on somebody of being buried. If I dunk you in the water, that looks like being buried. Buried with him, raised with him. This is the picture. I'm identifying with Jesus when I truly believe. And listen to me. You are not a genuine believer until you make that choice. Until you say, I believe and I accept you, Jesus, and I want you to be my Savior. I am turning in faith to you. Don't just think in your mind, yeah, I agree with a lot of the things that we're studying. Hallelujah. I hope that you do. But the truth is, Jesus isn't genuinely yours until you respond, obey, accept what's available. That's what these people did. That's what these Samaritans did. Now, verse 13 tells us even Simon did that. Simon's included in that, right? So Simon, at least from appearances, verse 13, Simon is a believer. He accepted and he is baptized. Now, that could get a little confusing here in a moment, right? But right now, that's the way Luke presents it, okay? So look down with me, if you would, at 14. He now transitions to this stream of thought on the Holy Spirit, okay? So, so hang with me here for a second. The news comes back to Jerusalem, and I love the way Luke does this. Luke is such a great storyteller, right? How many times have you ever watched a movie, and you're watching along, and then it switches to a scene, and they say, back in, you know, small town USA, whatever, wherever that is, right? They switch you back, and there you are, back in. That's exactly what Luke is doing here. Back in Jerusalem, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah, there we are. This is great. So back in Jerusalem, they hear about the Samaritans. The apostles hear about the Samaritans. They hear that they've received, and they decide, we got to send a couple apostles up there to make sure everything is copacetic, to make sure it all went, went right. And so they sent Peter and John. Now, this is interesting. Peter and John go up there, and when they go up there, they understand that they've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But they haven't received the Spirit. The Spirit of God has not come on them yet. Now, you say, some, some, you know, would say, well, see, that kind of defines for us that there really is kind of this second move of the Spirit. And, and I would say, just so that I'm not um, unclear, no, it absolutely is not. This is Acts. Acts has some unusual stuff. Do you recall back in Acts 2, when the disciples, when the apostles received the Spirit, what happens to them? Do you remember that? Right? Do you remember? They're, they're in the room there together, and Peter's talking to them, or uh, there's this loud rushing wind into the room, and over top of their heads, there's a little, it looks like a fiery tongue. How many of you have ever seen a fiery tongue when somebody got saved over their head? No, you haven't. And you know what? You're not going to. You know why? It happened in Acts. It's not going to happen today. That's what we have here. That is, this is a second accounting of the Spirit uniquely coming, and He comes that way, listen carefully to me, He comes that way for a reason. He comes that way for a very specific reason. Listen to me. All four of the unique accounts of the Spirit being given, 
He is given in the way he is given as evidence, first of all, as evidence to the Jews. The Spirit of God came the way He did to the apostles, and what happened? He came in such a fashion that a crowd was drawn in, and they're literally saying, are you guys drunk? And Peter steps up to the mic and says, no, we're not drunk. Of course we're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. But we do have something else to tell you about, right? And he preaches that sermon, the the first public sermon in Acts, he preaches that sermon at Pentecost, and 3,000 people understand, accept, believe, and are baptized and added to the church. This is that kind of account. So what happens is they come, they pray over these people, they lay their hands on them, and then what happens? The Spirit of God comes. And it's tangible. It's, there's evidence. Now, what is the evidence? What is the evidence that makes Simon say in verse 18, what I just saw, I'd like to be able to do that. <laughs> right? What is the evidence? Now, there's debate over this, as you can imagine. Whenever the Bible doesn't say, but it's obvious that something happened, there's debate over that, right? So here's the debate. Luke doesn't tell us what happened. He didn't say so we can't say dogmatically. However, in four occurrences where the Spirit of God uniquely comes like this, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, in four occurrences where he comes like this, guess what happened in all three of the other ones? The people who received the Spirit spoke in tongues. Why? It's proof. It's evidence. It's evidence that the Spirit had come. Now, stop and let's... Turn to today. Why doesn't that happen to us today? Well, the truth is the church isn't in this infancy foundational state where every single thing that happens, there needs to be proof so people will believe it. Listen to me, folks. The proof is in 2,000 years of this happening. Do you understand the people that claim to know Jesus today, the church as it functions and works today? Listen to me, that's proof all on its own. We don't need to speak in tongues today every time somebody receives Jesus as Savior because the proof is already there. It already exists. It's not here. And for people who are hearing and they're transitioning, many of them from Judaism, in a sense, they need some proof. They need some proof that this is real. And remember, the proof that Peter gives is the prophecy from Joel 2. Hey, your children, your loved ones, what are they going to do? They're going to be filled with the Spirit, and they are going to speak in languages. That's what happens. Potentially, we can't argue dogmatically, but potentially that's what happens here. It is what happens in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. That's what happens. That gift is in part a sign. It's in part a sign. And it does what it is supposed to do. It evidences tangibly the power and work of the Spirit of God. Some have described this incident as the Samaritan Pentecost. Because there's, there's this evidence now. Now, this is important again. Why? Because the Jews are looking at the Samaritans and they're saying what? You guys are religious frauds? There is no way. There is no way 
God is including you guys. And the disciples go up there and the spirit comes on them. And guess what they all have to say? Okay, he's including you guys. <laughs> we, we can't change that, right? Because the same thing that happened to us happened to you. God is at work building his church and it's evidenced by this interaction. So now we have this transition. Now remember, and it's important to note this, any interpretation that uses exceptions from the Bible like this as their foundation for doctrine, they're on shaky ground, period. That's it. This isn't where we want to understand or build our understanding of the Spirit from and how He works. So I'm not going to say from this and Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19, okay, that's how God is doing it today. Because you know what? For the rest of the last quarter of the book of Acts, we don't have that again. Why? The foundation is set. 30 years in, the foundation is set. And I think that's why Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, he says, listen, there's one foundation. If you know anything about building, you lay one foundation. You don't lay a foundation, build three fours and lay another foundation. It's not how it works. Once that foundation is done, those foundational gifts are no longer needed to function in the church. And I think that's kind of what's happening or what happens throughout Acts. So now we see this individual, Simon. Luke turns back to him in the story in verse 18, and he says to Peter, hey, can I have this gift? Now again, there's debate over what Simon's asking for. Some are suggesting Simon is asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some suggest Simon is saying, hey, I want to be able to lay hands on people like you guys did and them get the Holy Spirit. I think it's the latter one. He's actually saying, I want to be able to give this gift to people. I want that kind of power. I want people to keep looking at me in, in Samaria or in this Samarian city. I want them to keep looking at me the way they have. So, hey, can I have this gift? And he says, listen, I've, I've got money. I'll, I'll pay you for it. Right? <laughs> if I can get this gift, I mean, I'll, I'll compensate you for it, guys, you know. And uh, Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. That is not how we do things with Jesus, right? That is not how we do things with Jesus. Look at what he says. First, he says, may your silver perish with you. Now, what's fascinating is this. Peter's initial words to this man make it sound as if he's already condemned. He, he kind of phrases it or frames it as, you are already in really big trouble, right? So he first says, may your silver perish with you. That's his first rebuke. Uh, your money is no good here. And in a sense, this is a warning. It's a warning. And that warning is going to continue, but it begins with that. Your money doesn't work. The kingdom of God is not about money. And it certainly isn't governed through that. And it certainly shouldn't be influenced through that. Beware. The second warning. Peter states that Simon has no part, no portion. Why? Because his heart, his heart is not right. Now again, this is the case. Unless Simon's attitude, I think, changes or if he responds. Peter frames it as where you are right now, you're in trouble. But I think what's coming is an opportunity for Simon to turn. Okay, And I think that's important for us to remember. Uh, he goes on, the third warning, or the third 
thing that he commands. Verse 22, repent. Here's the action. Repent and pray for forgiveness. Both of those are commands. Repent and pray. It's critical that we understand the importance of repentance. What Peter is suggesting to Simon is change your mind, change the way you think about money and influence, turn from it. That is not how God's church works. Stop thinking that way. That's how you work. That's how you've operated. That's not how God operates. Turn from that. Repent of that. Turn from that. And he describes it here as wickedness. There's this this underlining, this underlying seriousness to this sin of Simon's. You are trying to control the church by buying that control. That is not how the church functions, and it does not honor God. It's a danger. The church gets off when it functions like that. In part, that's the warning here, and that's why this is so serious for Peter. He goes on and he gives two final applications. He says you're in the gall of bitterness, and you're in the bond of iniquity. Now, the gall of bitterness, that sounds so old, and I think just for the sake of kind of continuity, the ESV keeps that translation, but the idea is bitter envying. So here's the truth. What Simon is doing is he's looking at these new guys that have come in, in a sense, with his magician background, with his magic background. He's looking at them and he's saying, man, you guys are doing better tricks than I can do, right? I mean, Simon must have been quite a showman, you know what I mean? He, he could draw a crowd and he's, he's looking at them. He's going, man, your crowds are better than my crowds. Boy, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm losing this and I wish I had it, right? So Peter is saying, you are in this serious dangerous place of bitter envying. Now listen to me. What's fascinating to me is that James addresses this in his uh, letter in the middle of chapter 3. He says this should not characterize the church. What's one of the things he says? Bitter, jealous envy. There is a danger always in the church where there is this competition like There's this bitter envying. You're getting more recognition than I'm getting. Folks, that's not the church. That's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way it's supposed to function. It's not the way we're supposed to be driven as God's people. Our longing is to exalt Jesus. That's it. That's our hope and goal. Our ambition, right? That's what we're after. So that's the first one. The second one, the bond of iniquity. And here's the idea of that. He's literally saying to Simon, you are under this powerful control of sin. Now, what that demonstrates is two things. I think, number one, it demonstrates, because I think Simon is a believer at this point, it demonstrates the danger of sin. It demonstrates the danger of sin even in a believer's life. Your wrong thinking, your wrong responses, your wrong actions, your wrong attitudes can develop into a serious bondage. And literally, you've been freed from that. The text we'll look at tonight, 2 Peter 1, Peter literally says, no, you've been unclassed. You've been freed, set free from sin. It's not supposed to be in charge. That's Peter's point. You're still letting sin run the show and make the decisions and your choices. No, 
No, you've been freed. So repent and turn from that. And I think Simon responds. He responds in verse 24 and he says to Peter, will you pray for me? I think in a sense he's turning and saying, will you help me? Now some suggest that this is sarcastic and and he's not because he's not genuinely a believer. I don't think that that's the case. I think he's a genuine believer, but his background shaped his response, the way he viewed the entire scenario, where he's coming from shapes this. But I think in part what Luke wants to communicate to us is this. You can't buy what's supposed to happen in the church. You can't buy the power of God. You can't buy influence. You can't buy everything that matters in the church. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. This work is a work, a powerful work of God that may it be so for us that God lets us be part of. I don't know about you, but that's that's what I'd like to be part of. The powerful working of God, right? That's, I think, what Peter's saying. You can't buy that. It just doesn't work that way. It's not about influence. It's not about who you are. Truthfully, for every one of us as believers in Jesus, we're equal. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter your position in the community. It doesn't matter. When we come together as his people, we're one because of Jesus, and that's it. So he concludes, Luke does this entire section with when they had testified, when they had spoken the word. So obviously some training is happening, teaching, instruction. They return as they return, they're preaching in all these cities. And the gospel, I think, continues and it grows and it advances. And this is the way God does his work. It's magnificent. And I think, I hope, as we walk through that, you can see all of us, every single one of us must Be aware of self-seeking and bitter envying. And instead, we must be controlled by the Spirit of God. We need help. We need help. We need grace. You can't get that grace today if you've never turned in faith to Jesus. You must accept what Jesus has done for you. It's for you. It's personal. You have to accept it. You have to respond to it. Do you know Jesus today, personally, truly? Is Jesus your Savior, Rescuer today? As we conclude, I want you to consider, and I I didn't in some ways realize this, silly me, but there's a practice within the church that actually is named after Simon here in Acts 8. It is called simony. Kind of makes sense, right? According to uh, Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, the term simony means the buying or selling of a church office or ecclesiastical preferment of some kind. And what it means by a church office is not the office that is in the church. It's an office like I'm a pastor or I'm a deacon or I'm some other leadership Uh, position within the context of the church. And I'm going to give money to purchase that. Simony, believe it or not, has been practiced down through church history. There was a time in early church history, not long after Acts, like a hundred years after this book is done, that bishops literally 
would give money to buy their position. The archbishop, a cardinal, all of it, ecclesiastical parishes, church parishes, church congregations, they could be purchased with the right amount of money. So this is not new. I don't know that that many of us know this, but simony finally came to its height at the time of the Reformation when all over Europe indulgences were being sold to build the great St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And if you recall, Luther actually nails his 95 thesis to the door of his local Catholic church. Why? Because of indulgences. All of that is fascinating. One commentator in relation to this text, he wrote, Money, a form of human power, is another factor in the human corruption of religion, one that receives special attention throughout the book of Acts. And it does in this text. This is a warning. As a body of believers, God calls us to tread lightly. Our goal is not to be recognized, not to advance, not to be heard because of what I give or could give. That's never the motive, ever. The church truly is about the people of God genuinely caring for one another humbly at times putting themselves under somebody that they would never put themselves under on the outside of the church. But we do that because of who Jesus is and because of his humility and the way that he engaged. Listen carefully. That mindset, whether we like it or not, is so pervasive it kind of worms its way into our churches without us even realizing it's there. And this text is a warning. Beware, beware, beware of self-seeking and bitter envy to get what you want and to get it the way you want. To be recognized, to be identified. That's not the church. It doesn't fit with being a follower of Jesus. Today, do you know Jesus personally? Have you turned in faith to him? Calling out, acknowledging, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, you can today. Come see me if you're a man. Come see my wife. We'd love to show you how you can know. If you're a believer, are you guarding? Are you guarding against that reality And instead, as the text also demonstrates, being controlled by the Spirit. Is He at work in control in your life? Does the fruit of your life say that? Affirm it. It should. It can. By His grace.